Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. It is true that a house divided against itself by the spirit of faction, of party, of region, of religion, of race, is a house that cannot stand. There is division in the American house now. There is divisiveness among us all tonight. And holding the trust that is mine as president of all the people, I cannot disregard the peril to the progress of the American people and the hope and the prospects of peace for all peoples. So I would ask all Americans, whatever their personal interests are concerned, to guard against divisiveness and all of its ugly consequences. We're back in 1968 again. That voice you just heard was from the 36th president, Lyndon Johnson, during a primetime address to the nation on March 31st, 1968. The television networks postponed their regular coverage to show the furrowed-faced president for more than 40 minutes as he talked about the war that had put those grooves in his face, grooves deep enough to store the change in your pocket at the end of the day. The sentiment about division from the president's speech is familiar to whistle-stop listeners, both those who recognize the talk of division from American politics today And also those who know about that awful year of 1968 when the country was divided in a way that we don't really experience it today. Young versus old, black versus white, rural versus city, long-haired hippies versus the straight crew-cut squares. It was a dirty, bad, awful, no-good year with riots, protests, and uncertainty everywhere. Johnson called it a year of continuous nightmare. Among writers, there seems to have been some kind of an unofficial competition to describe how awful things were. Time magazine said in 1968, one damn thing after another, indeed. Also, one tragic, surprising, and perplexing thing after another. Events have moved at the pace of an avant-garde movie edited by a mad clutter. In his speech, Johnson was addressing the nation, the divided nation, about the core thing that was dividing everyone, the subject that had split the country, the war in Vietnam. tries every way to make our country prosperous. He fights rural poverty with CBUs and phosphorus. Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids you killed today? We're gonna take your toys away and bring our children. The speech included two bombshells. First, that there would be a halt to the bombshelling of northern Vietnam, and a second detonation that would explode the political landscape with the most dramatic speech ending in presidential history. Our whistle stop today is January 17th, 1968. President Lyndon Johnson is delivering his State of the Union address. I have come once again to this chamber, the home of our democracy, to give you, as the Constitution requires, information of the State of the Union. I report to you that our country is challenged at home and abroad that it is our will that is being tried and not our strength. 
our sense of purpose and not our ability to achieve a better America. That we have the strength to meet our every challenge, the physical strength to hold the course of decency and compassion at home, and the moral strength to support the cause of peace in the world. The speech, the State of the Union, is seen by everyone as the kickoff to his re-election campaign. But in Maryland farm country, Horace Busby thinks it might be the end to something. The president's longtime friend inches towards the television as Johnson brings the State of the Union to a close. Busby is watching for Johnson to reach into his jacket pocket for a sheet of paper containing a peroration that is not in the teleprompter. It was a sheet that Busby had helped craft when the two men had met a few days earlier. That piece of paper was also drawing the first lady's attention, Lady Bird. Johnson wrote in her diary, As he approached the end, I tightened up in my seat. Would he end with his statement? Did I want him to? Would I be relieved if he did or if he didn't? How do I know where Horace Busby was and what Lady Bird was thinking? I'm relying on Horace Busby's book, The 31st of March, and White House Diary by Lady Bird Johnson. To the State of the Union address, the members of Congress applauded. Quite loud, actually, for an unpopular president, and Johnson was unpopular at the time. He accepted their adulation and then finished the speech. He stepped down from the elevated stage of the well of the House of Representatives, and he did not step down from the office of the presidency. That's what Busby and Lady Bird were listening for in those, for that final bit of the speech. That's what was on the sheet of paper that Johnson might read, or that they looked to see if he would read. Days before the State of the Union speech, Johnson had called Busby to help him rewrite it. Busby, who Johnson called Buzz, thought it was nor- Johnson's normal rewriting routine after a big speech. Johnson told Busby he was displeased with the first draft of the State of the Union. I get the best minds in Washington together, and what did they come up with? Vomit. Fifty pages of vomit. He asked Busby for his thoughts about how to make it better. To give you some sense of their relationship, earlier in their relationship, when Johnson worked on the Hill, the senator had brought every book he could find on Winston Churchill, dumped them on Busby, and said, Be my Churchill. And we should note, for anyone listening to Whistle Stop while they're running, or washing the car, or perhaps doing chores, the speech we're talking about here is the State of the Union, not the one in our tease. We'll get to that in a moment. We're building to it. As Johnson and Buzz met in advance of the annual speech, the State of the Union, the two collaborators talked about its contents. Then Johnson said he had a private matter to discuss. He was thinking about ending the State of the Union speech with a resignation from the office. It was the only way he could really focus on Vietnam if he didn't have to worry about the presidential campaign in 1968. This was a familiar pattern for Johnson, a man of large appetites and vast insecurities. He often felt sorry for himself in front of aides in an effort to get those aides and his wife and his friends to buck him up. But Busby wasn't sure if that's what the president was doing in this case. He wrote out the the sheet in which the president would announce he was not running for re-election and gave it to him and thought he might very well go through with it. After listening, however, to the actual State of the Union address and seeing that Johnson had decided not to withdraw, Busby said to himself, my visit to the White House on the previous Sunday must have been for the purpose of therapy. Later, one of LBJ's aides asked him why he hadn't gone through with it at the end of the State of the Union address, and he said, well... 
it was sort of difficult to lay out a big program for the Congress and say, I want you to pass all these things and then conclude with, okay, thanks and so long, I'm checking out. It just didn't work, said Johnson. For this opening, I have also relied on Kyle Longley's book, LBJ 1968. Johnson returned after the State of the Union and hunched in front of the three televisions in his office. Three televisions, one for each national network. Our current president isn't the only one who watches his reviews on the television. The president got a wet fish slap. He had made the Vietnam War, said critics, seem more manageable than people believed. And they said he wasn't very inspirational. Lady Bird Johnson wrote in her diary, this was like working very hard, putting out all you've got, and then settling back to hear the verdict and finding out your efforts were not good enough. The efforts had been modest, particularly on the Vietnam question, though, of course, it was a laundry list speech. On Vietnam in particular, what Johnson was trying in part to do was settle down Senators Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy, critics of the administration's policies in Vietnam and what they thought looked like an endless war. If Johnson could appeal on the nation's television screens through that State of the Union as a confident leader strengthened rather than weakened by the besieging of his presidency, then that might be enough to stabilize the political situation of his presidency and launch that reelection campaign. When Lyndon Johnson assumed the presidency, he inherited John Kennedy's adventure in Vietnam. When he took over, this is what he said about Vietnam. We'll stay by our word, but I have misgivings. I feel like a fish that just grabbed a worm with a big hook in the middle of it. But still, even though he felt that way, the president continued. He said, quote, he was not going to be the president who saw Southeast Asia go the way China went. What Johnson was referring to there was the whole who lost China matter. The idea that FBR had been too trusting of Chiang Kai-shek and also Truman after him. Republicans had exploited the issue in the 1952 elections. No Republican more than Senator Joseph McCarthy. He claimed that communists and queers at the State Department were responsible for losing China by underestimating the communist goals in China. The idea was not that the U.S. owned China, let's not be overly literal, but that they had lost China in the ideological struggle against the Soviet Union, the notion that there were countries at stake in, in the fight between communism and capitalism. Under this thinking, the U.S. had to support the weak South Vietnamese government under No Ding Diem in order to hold off the communist Viet Cong, a guerrilla force aided and helped by Ho Chi Minh in the north. Ho Chi Minh wanted to reunify Vietnam. A communist victory in Vietnam would inevitably snowball across the region, went the thinking, snowball or cause the dominoes to fall, whichever metaphor you want to use. In that November of 1963, Johnson was so wary, said he felt like a fish who'd caught a big hook less than a year after Kennedy's death and just two months before the Gulf of Tonkin resolution would give Johnson the military authority to fight in Southeast Asia. He called McGeorge Bundy as national security advisor, and he still, a year after being in the presidency, he still felt wary. I'll tell you, he said, the more I stayed awake last night thinking this thing, the more I think of it, it looks like to me like we're getting into another Korea. I don't think it's worth fighting for, and I don't think we can get out, and it's just the biggest damn mess. What the hell is Vietnam worth to me? What is it worth to this country? It's damn easy to get into a war, but it's going to be awfully hard to ever extricate yourself if you get in. Vietnam, a slow motion car crash. Watch Ken Burns' amazing series on it to feel that sense of absolute chaos and catastrophe arrived at through a slow accretion of mistakes. Despite the worry about getting sucked in, Johnson didn't want to lose Vietnam and didn't want to look weak. 
And that was the key word week. Mark Updegrove, formerly of the LBJ Library and the author of The Indomitable Will, LBJ and the Presidency, writes about what was going on in Johnson's head. This is Updegrove. Weakness, Johnson had said, in three decades of Washington, that would be his three decades of serving in Washington, was never rewarded. Weakness was never rewarded. When Johnson said of Vietnam, we're not going to have any men with umbrellas, he was making a pointed reference to the hapless Chamberlain. Chamberlain, the British prime minister who appeased Hitler. The message was clear, writes up to Grove. America would stand up to Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong in a way that Chamberlain had not stood up to Hitler and the Nazi regime. For the 36th president, Vietnam began less as a conflict he was determined to win than as one he couldn't afford to lose. So now, flash forward to 1967. The U.S. has half a million troops in South Vietnam. In October of that year, 100,000 people, that year being 1967, 100,000 people marched on the Pentagon. The enemy continues to pour men and material across frontiers and into battle despite his continuous heavy losses. He continues to hope that America's will to persevere can be broken. Well, he is wrong. So in November of 1967, this is just basically two months before that State of the Union address that started our tale here. November 1967, Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota announces his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. He announces he's going to run in a limited number of states. Just to rewind a little bit here, McCarthy had been one of those Democrats considered to be one of Johnson's running mates potentially in 1964. And let's go back to 1964 for just a minute. So we're going from 67 to 64. In 64, Johnson had won 61% of the vote over Barry Goldwater, the highest vote share of any president ever. He'd passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, and Medicare. If you're simply chalking up domestic legislative achievements, if that's all that defined a presidency, then Lyndon Johnson's presidency was an extremely successful one. Also, just a note about historical pace. The times we are in are very busy, but man, we think the news cycle clicks along now. But in the Johnson years and in 1968, history was moving lickety split. And it wasn't just moving fast. It was moving with consequence. These weren't just shiny objects. There were riots in the cities with casualties and war that worked its way into every single home and assassinations of America's, some of America's biggest leaders in American public life. Back to McCarthy, November 67, decides to get in the race. He'd become increasingly disenchanted with Johnson's policies. And in 67, he he published something called The Limits of Power, which was an assessment of U.S. foreign policy that was extremely critical of the Johnson administration. When announcing his candidacy, McCarthy said he hoped to harness the growing anti-war sentiment in the country, particularly among the young. Here's what he said. My decision to challenge the president's position has been strengthened by recent announcements from the administration of plans for continued escalation and intensification of the war in Vietnam. And on the other hand, by the absence of any positive indications or suggestions for a compromise or negotiated political settlement. This is in November of 67. McCarthy said, I do not see in my move any great threat to the unity and the strength of the Democratic Party, which is kind of amusing because later in 1968, of course, the Democratic, the riots at the Democratic Convention over the war would shock the country as the party tore itself apart. So at this point in November 67, McCarthy's not particularly trying to win the presidency. He's he's entered a limited number of primaries, and he's really trying to send a message, harness the young voters. We think of that now as a pretty standard kind of thing. We think of it as Howard Dean, Bernie Sanders, even to some extent Jerry Brown. 
This was the first in the modern conception of younger voters coming in to change policy in the American system, the McCarthy armies of 1968. By the time the State of the Union came around in 1968, Johnson spoke of U.S. operations in Vietnam as a test of American character. As Johnson put it in another time, we're not going to yield and we're not going to shimmy. Okay, now it's the 31st of January. The State of the Union has been given. The reviews come in. They're not so good. 31st of January, the North Vietnamese start the Tet Offensive, a coordinated set of surprise attacks. They were meant to break apart the alliance between the South Vietnamese and the United States. So while firecrackers are being are exploding and celebrating the Lunar New Year, the Viet Cong attacked, and they attacked the U.S. Embassy, putting a rocket-propelled grenade right through the front door. The attack failed, and the embassy was secured, but the fierce North Vietnamese attack sent the signal that the, to the U.S. and the U.S. public that the war was not going to wind up anytime soon. That the sign of will and show of will that the president had demonstrated in his State of the Union wasn't backing down the, the Viet Cong. It was, it was a battle where the North Vietnamese did not win the battle of Tet, but the surprise of the fact itself and, as, and, and the fact that they got as far as they got and had to be beat back with as much firepower and energy and loss of life shocked the U.S. And it broke the will of a country where the will was already breaking. Before Tet, the Johnson administration had been claiming that the end of the war was in sight. After Tet, it was clear the long struggle still lay ahead. The Pentagon requested more than 200,000 new troops in order to mount a counteroffensive. And at this point, Walter Cronkite comes in. February of 1968, in the wake of the Tet Offensive, Cronkite, who'd been a moderate and a balanced observer of the war's progress, announced that it seemed, quote, more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. Here's Cronkite. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of the evidence the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance that military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. While Johnson was inhabiting the presidency in full with all of his earthiness, Senator McCarthy was out there being his erudite, elite, sleek self. He was professorial. He had been a professor of sociology. And he was also a devout Catholic, so much so that he had entered the monastery as a novice and contemplated life as a priest. He was also an intellectual who quoted Dylan Thomas. And on the campaign stump, he quoted poetry about Vietnam. I say farewell, went one poem that he wrote. I say farewell to the blazing, blackening place where I was born. Here is my breast. Aim your gun at it, brother. Shoot. I offer my body. Destroy it if you will. And who will be left to celebrate a victory made of blood and fire? The audiences of young voters, but also of anti-war Democrats, thrilled to his case. The administration, McCarthy said, was following a policy of death, destruction, and dishonor. In New Hampshire, a key contest of New Hampshire, the press said McCarthy would get about 12% of the vote. But he kept at it, driving at his young army of volunteers. We should note 
This is before the 26th Amendment. So the age had to be 21 to vote. So a lot of these young people who were marching for Gene McCarthy in New Hampshire and 2,000 of them uh, volunteered for him in, McCar- in New Hampshire were people who couldn't vote. They just wanted to be involved in the process. They wanted to change the um, policies in the war in Vietnam, which, by the way, had created a draft that was causing their friends or, or themselves, perhaps, to get sent off to this war and killed. So there was a huge generational divide going on between those who wanted to be involved in politics and who thought the politics and the people of the older generation were corrupt. We should note there is, of course, clean gene, go clean for gene uh, notion, which is to say hippies shaved their beards and straightened up and, and looked presentable as they went knocking on doors and talking to voters in New Hampshire. There was some of that for sure. But in a lot of the reading about this, there were also, also just a lot of anti-war Democrats who didn't like Johnson, didn't like what he stood for. And so that the, the, the go clean for Gene might be a little overstated if you think of it as the entire sum of the McCarthy support. Here's how the New York Times wrote about his support in New Hampshire. At its best, it has been something special, something very rare in American politics. It has been a grassroots movement that defied the pollsters and the pundits to, to spark a political revolution. It has been a crusade, and that is the only word, for there has been a religious fervor in the air that united thousands of people, not by the charisma of an Eisenhower or a Kennedy, but by a common belief in what Eugene McCarthy calls the best of all possible causes, the cause for peace. Speaking of that, uh, you know, it's about the war for sure, but it's also about this notion of Washington politicians not telling the truth and that McCarthy, by judging, uh, questioning the war and, and, and speaking up for peace, was also making a blow against kind of businesses as usual in Washington. And so, of course, there's a voter who's interviewed in The New York Times, who uh, a middle-aged woman who works in a textile mill, who says, I like the way he talks, low-key. We've had enough phony baloney out of Washington. So it's style as well as substance. This notion of disillusionment with Washington was captured in the Gallup poll. George Gallup concluded uh, that that his polling in 1968, of all the time we've been operating, 32 years now, I've never known a time like this when people are so disillusioned and cynical. McCarthy said about New Hampshire, New Hampshire, you don't have to win, you just have to beat the spread. And that's what he did in 1968 in New Hampshire in early March. Prognosticator said he'd get 12% of the vote. He got 42% of the vote. Johnson won, but barely. As we know from our story of 1972, uh, well, and lots of other instances where George McGovern in 1972 comes in second. Muskie wins, but McGovern is the big story. Clinton comes in second, but he's the big story in 92 in New Hampshire. And so Johnson wins, but loses because McCarthy does so much better than everybody thinks. It's like the Tet Offensive, not to put too much too fine a point upon it. But the insurgency loses, but does far better than anyone has expected and shocks the political world. Shocks the world so much that after New Hampshire, Robert Kennedy was asked by Sam Donaldson of ABC News, who caught up with him at at, uh, National Airport, if he was rethinking his notions about running uh, for the presidency. And given the result in New Hampshire, Kennedy said yes, he was rethinking it. So March 16th, he went to the Senate caucus room where his brother had announced his campaign run and announced that he was running. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. I do not run for the presidency merely to oppose any man, but to propose new policies. So now you've got McCarthy and Kennedy running, and as the political fight grew more intense, the strain of Vietnam weighed even more heavily on the president. Tet was a disaster on the one hand, political signs of disaster on the other. And at this point in mid-March, fewer than 50% of the members of the president's own Democratic Party approved of his handling of the Vietnam War. 
president said, I felt like a hitchhiker on a Texas highway in the middle of a hailstorm. I can't run. I can't hide. I can't make it go away. His aide, Jack Valenti, said it was the Vietnam War that cut the arteries of the LBJ administration. George McGovern left the White House dinner and described LBJ as a, quote, tortured and confused man, literally tortured by the mess he has gotten into in Vietnam. He is restless, almost like a caged animal. These accounts come from Kyle uh, Longley's LBJ 68, 1968. So with Vietnam in such trouble, Johnson called for a national speech. His purpose, as announced to the press on the previ- uh, at that point at the end of March, was to review the American policy in Southeast Asia, where the combat forces were in, in this awful post-Tet engagement. He said to Busby, who he'd called in to help with this speech on the 31st, now several months after he'd called in Hus- uh, Busby to help him with the State of the Union, he said in this about this later speech and and in their preparation for it, he said, I can't get peace in Vietnam and be president too. So this was the first sign to Busby that the president was revisiting this idea of it not running for re-election that he had first brought up back in January. But then Busby, having been stung once by this, wrote, I rejected the notion as another effort by this power-nurtured egomaniac to win sympathy for the burden he carried. But there was maybe something a little bit more going on here in March. Well, of course, there'd been Tet. And the idea that basically nothing that Johnson was doing was getting the North and Vietnamese to come to the table. He was weary, and we've talked about that. And he finally said to Busby, I don't want the whole damn world watching every time I move and listening every time I open my mouth. He was burdened by the presidency. He wanted to escape. Sometime before I go, he said, go meaning leaving the planet, I want to be able to go down to that ranch and sit by that river and look out over the hills and be a human being. Now, again, this could have been more crying in his beer, but we can't go plumb the depths of the Johnson psychology. Certainly not in one whistle stop. Maybe not in one lifetime. Robert Caro is working on it. There's another interesting passage from their conversation between Busby and Johnson in these March set of conversations about not running for re-election, which are distinct from the January conversations. In March... Johnson gives this riff about the presidency and what the what you're supposed to do in the presidency, who you're supposed to be thinking about. Now, this was an incredibly selfish and self-centered president who often did things out of peak and anger based on absolutely the pure internal humors of his constitution, who was, when he did things as a statesman, often doing them for his own personal reasons as much as any notion of statesmanship but the, but the presidency itself as we are in this time of questioning examining and looking at presidential norms there is obviously always a relationship between the norms of the presidency and the things you're supposed to do on behalf of the people in the country and the benefit you get for your own personal ego of course there's always a mix because the most ambitious and egotistical men so far men have run for the office for themselves but of course have run for an office that's about public service and helping the country And so there's always this complicated mix between what you do for yourself and what you do for the country. And often there is a case where a president can do something in the name of the country and they're doing it for themselves. So why this long preamble? Well, because, of course, Johnson uh, personally enriched himself both by his stature when he was a senator, but then also by some of his private business dealings. So complicated fellow. Uh, And so... The question is, while a president may have acted selfishly, does that remove his standing and ability to talk about presidential norms? Or 
Our presidential norms, the kinds of things that have been maintained and get maintained through an act of stewardship between presidencies, in part because presidents are selfish, but nevertheless need these norms to set the standard for their public behavior, which then feeds their desire to do well in public, to feed their ego as a public servant. So it's a, the standard was this. You must never forget that fellow out in Omaha or Indianapolis or Denver, said Johnson to Busby. He has a wife going into the hospital for a cancer operation, a daughter he's trying to put through school, a boy on his way to Vietnam, car payments to meet, insurance premiums due, a mortgage hanging over his head, and his mother needing to go into a nursing home. When that fellow looks at the White House, he thinks the man there has it made, has everything in the world, and he's right. All my troubles put together aren't as big for a president as that little fellow's troubles are for him. We have to remember that. We have to remember that here in this house, no man who sits here can ever afford to think of himself first. So, it was with that line of thinking that Johnson went into the speech. He called the national audience. He sat before his enormous desk, looking at the cameras. He took a glass of water, and right before he started speaking, Lady Bird Johnson, wearing a fire engine red dress, clasped both hands at his side, whispered in, leaned in, whispered to him one last word of encouragement. The Vietnam news in the speech was that, that the United States was limiting the bombing of North Vietnam to the area below the 20th parallel, thus sparing 90% of the communist-held territory. And he was calling for negotiations to end the war. This was a big deal. This was uh, basically offering a concession to the North Vietnamese without any asking for anything in return. It was a gamble. Johnson said, it's only a roll of the dice. I'm shoving in all my stack on this one. So it was that was the big news. That was the big gamble. But there was another gamble in that speech, of course. Lady Bird Johnson was standing off camera. This according to Lawrence O'Donnell's uh, book about the 1968 election. Lady Bird was standing off camera and she and the president had a signal. If the president decided he was going to say those additional words, this is just like what happened in the State of the Union. If he was going to say those additional words at the end of the speech, then he would warn the first lady by lifting his right hand. He told Busby, you and I are the only two people who will ever believe that I won't know whether I'm going to do this or not until I get to that last line of my speech on the teleprompter. Well, Johnson got there. And when he got there, he said these words that shook the nation. I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Johnson, who had used power and pushed for power and put it at the center of his entire career, was giving up power voluntarily. And why was he doing it? Well, he was doing it to put all of his attentions towards the Vietnam War, of course. But it was also, let's not, this is what that long riff about ambition was about. This was also an act of ambition. This was a hope that with a last-ditch effort, a Hail Mary pass, he could, by giving up power, score one final victory, which was bring this ugly, horrible war to an end. He knew the war was needed a big, grand gesture. So this was not simply a selfless act to get to the right policy outcome. It was an attempt to get to the right policy outcome in order to cement a legacy that would be different than the awful one 
that stood before him, which was months and years of endless war as young men were fed into the meat grinder of Vietnam. Here's how the New York Times covered the speech. President Johnson's announcement that he will not seek the re-election or accept the Democratic Party's 1968 presidential nomination caused a sharp jump in the volume of long-distance telephone calls across the United States last night. And in New York, nearly 150 telegrams poured into the Western Union office within minutes after the president's speech. Most of the telegrams went to President Johnson. About 9 of 10 urged him to run again. What I love about that and the long-distance telephone calls going up is, you know, today when something happens on television that's unexpected, everybody gets on Twitter. Well, that instinct existed back in 1968 when there was no Twitter. People just picked up their telephones. In New York City and Greenwich Village, which is a hotbed of anti-Johnson sentiment, the New York Times reported that about... Ten people marched down the 8th Street between University Place and 5th Avenue singing, Goodbye, Lyndon, goodbye. Goodbye, Lyndon, we're glad to see you go. The crowd started to grow as it frolicked along MacDougall and Bleecker Streets, yelling, Johnson's not running. People outside, outside cafes, of course they're outside cafes, gave victory signs. Some would look at the news bearers in disbelief and then respond by shouting happily. It's a magnificent gesture on Johnson's part, said one of the hippies in Washington Square, reported the New York Times. It's a good thing for him to do, said another hippie. None of the hippie youths speculated on the consequences. At the fountain in Washington Square Park, a youth played a tape, which was recording Johnson's speech, and the crowd grew to about 200, and at the end of it, he, they cheered and cheered. The next day, Abigail McCarthy put a call into the president. This is the wife of... Senator Eugene McCarthy, who has been running against the president and who, is, who did so well in the New Hampshire primary. But even Abigail McCarthy was shocked. Hello. Hello. Yes? Yes. This is Abigail McCarthy. Oh, Abigail, how are you? I am fine, Mr. President, but I am overcome with emotion, really. I, I don't see how you could have done it. Well, I just thought we had to do it because there's so much at stake that one little person like me didn't... No, you aren't one little person. Well, I've got nine months now to do nothing except I won't spend one moment doing anything except trying to find peace. And I just thought I had to do it. You hear there in that in Johnson's voice when he talks about himself, you hear that little of that self-pity, that fishing for a compliment, that hoping to get bucked up. Hubert Humphrey, the vice president who would ultimately run to be and would be the nominee of the Democratic Party, had this reaction right after the speech. I'm sure you all know that I deeply regret the president's announcement, he told reporters, that he will not seek another term. And then reported one newspaper, his voice grew tremulous and his eyes welled with tears. This is a very sad moment for me. Among those who expressed admiration for the president was Senator Jacob Javits, a Republican of New York. He's what used to be called a moderate Republican. In such a grave hour of war and national doubt, Senator Javits said the president has lifted the presidency to its proper place far away from politics. The country must be grateful to him for this new opportunity to renew itself, Mr. Javits went on, to make peace and to reassert its leadership in the world. This is a challenge to which men of breadth in both parties must respond. I love that, the idea of men of breadth. So this is the way norms kick in. So a president appeals to a norm for whatever reason he's doing it, even if it's a low motive. But by engaging in the norm, by selflessly giving something up, by giving up power, you then access this bit of magic that Javits was talking about, which, so the theory goes, inspires other politicians to reach to their highest and best, to, to seek to be in concert with a higher set of norms about how you behave and do the will of the people and the will of the country and not 
your own personal partisan desires. So here's how uh, Henry Gemmell of the, of the Wall Street Journal wrote about the speech. LBJ is launched on his greatest gamble, that a lame duck can do something more than limp. So Johnson would have less power. If I do this, he said, the great question is, can I get my orders carried out? The, on the one hand, the North Vietnamese would just wait him out. There was, you know, he's a lame duck president. Uh, he doesn't have any power. He can't push Congress around. Nobody uh, needs his political power. So he's on the ropes. The U.S. is on the ropes. Why not wait him out for a new president with whom they could make a better deal? But there was another view in the White House, and this was the view the president and White House advisors were hoping for, which was that the North Vietnamese would fear a president who could take significant tough measures unrestrained by the worries of having to be reelected. Officials say privately, said the New York Times, that word is being passed to the Reds that a sword hangs over them, that North Vietnam can be smashed in ways not hitherto attempted. The calculation here is that Hanoi might not find such escalatory threats at all plausible coming from a U.S. president seeking re-election by war-weary voters, but might find them thoroughly credible coming from a non-candidate. As we know from the Whistle Stop episode of the Chenault Affair, the year 1968 would not bring peace in Vietnam, and the North Vietnamese did not feel the pressure, and they did want to wait out Johnson. The political conjecture was all over the place about what and how this this lame duck status would would play out. Here's another newspaper account. To the extent that the popular picture of Lyndon Johnson changes from a self-seeking politician to a self-sacrificing statesman, the president can hope for some other possible dividends. Notably, as the summer heat approaches, there can be a better chance that Negro ghetto dwellers will heed his increasingly stern injunctions against rioting and that whites will heed his continued appeals for more generosity in providing jobs and other breaks for Negroes. The focus of Mr. Johnson's efforts, however, will be the attempt to get the Vietnamese Reds into a serious attempt to unwind the Asian War. The president's associates say he has shown he is deadly serious about that aim, but has given the world only a partial glimpse of his techniques aimed at achieving it. But all of this speculation was, I thought, best put in a Wall Street Journal piece that framed the sense of surprise at the end of this speech and put it into the right context. But all such calculations are highly conjectural, and the outstanding fact about the political professionals at the moment is that they are so shaken by developments that they had failed to anticipate that they have lost their customary assurance. So for a moment, political professionals were pushed into a posture of having to be actually humble about the events that had happened and might happen coming. Johnson's decision to halt escalation after the Tet Offensive marked a crucial turning point in American participation in the Vietnam War. But that news was not the reason this speech on the 31st of March 1968 would be remembered. It would be remembered for the most shocking end to a presidential speech in history and a great last camp gamble, a final roundhouse by a defeated politician to finally, by sacrificing his career, try to bring the Vietnam War to a conclusion. It was a gamble that didn't pay off. Peace talks would drag on for another five years during which time more American soldiers were killed than in the previous years of conflict. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, and he definitely cracked the jackers on this one. Brian is also one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And thanks to Dustin Gervais at CBS Radio, who hooked me up with the studio to report in. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Hold up. 